Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Aji, the VP of Product at Calendly. So Calendly is powerful scheduling software that lets you eliminate all the old school ways, things like using a phone and email, to schedule a meeting. Aji and I talked about the ways that product managers can approach friction, and we talked about people skills. Aji believes that the biggest problem in building software isn't something technical. It can't be narrowed down to complex engineering issues or even marketing ones. The issue has always been people. With this in mind, Aji believes that people skills are absolutely essential in product managers who want to excel at their jobs. Product managers need to master this skill or these skills in order to achieve alignment of vision across multiple departments and competing interests. And if product managers sense disconnect, they need to escalate issues. This got me to thinking about how product managers should force these conversations, even if they're conversations that maybe are uncomfortable to have. Alignment is a necessary issue in product success, so product managers need to emphasize alignment. Think about it like this. If your company can't get behind a vision for a product, can your customers? Well, let me know how you handle friction and difficult conversations at ebodic at pendo.io, or you can reach me at ebodic on Twitter. Welcome over to Product. I'm here today with Aji, the VP of Product from Calendly. And I even said that right. Calendly, you got it right. I got it right. <laughs> so why don't we start this, Aji, with you giving us a little overview of your background. I think it depends on how far back you want to go, but I'll go a ways. I moved here to the United States from Nigeria for grad school, went to USC. I was going to do an EECS PhD, but I got my master's and bailed. I decided not to teach and left for industry. I joined Microsoft, and that's where I learned all the basics of being a product manager and built a lot of cool things, some of that you probably recognize. Uh, I left there and I did a few things, joined a hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, uh, started my own company, exited that, and I wound up at Atlassian building a new product, uh, the first product they had since their IPO. And lately I just joined Calendly and I'm working to build its product and culture into the best in the world. So tell me about the Atlassian product. What, what product do you join them to build? So Atlassian acquired uh, HipChat sometime in 2012, 2013. Uh, it was just a small little startup and an experiment. Uh, but Atlassian was very um, future-oriented and team-oriented, and I thought it would be a good part of their portfolio. And then they built that into you know millions of customers. But Slack came along and was far more popular. And in competing with Slack and the growth in the category, uh, there's so many limitations architectural limitations in the product. So they decided to build, build a brand new product. But not just replace HipChat, which that was a product, and Slack, but we sort of thought about how we could extend the value proposition. So Stride was about chatting, but also about meetings, right, which is a crucial part of the workflow at work. And so we had a video team, a world-class open source video team we had acquired, and we sort of blended the two products together. 
And of course, there are all these team elements that are not even available today, like how to extract actions from conversation or tasks and, and meetings, like directly in chat, uh, which unfortunately those ideas haven't really been sort of taken forward in Slack. But you know, fast forward a couple of years after I took that team, we decided to get out of that business and we sold the IP to and, and the code to Slack. So that was my run at Atlassian as a leader of the communication side of the business. And then uh, after that was over, I decided to leave and come to Calendly. So some interesting companies you worked at, Microsoft, Atlassian, Calendly. I imagine different cultures. Talk to me about each one and how it was working in a product leadership role at those different types of companies. Uh, interesting. You know, Microsoft was my longest stint. I started out as you know, the lowest of the low PMs and, and rose into, into a lead. Um, I loved Microsoft. Microsoft was, it just offered a huge canvas for creativity. I got to work with Microsoft Research. I got to work with Microsoft Office. I got to work with the search technologies on Bing. I was working on Windows and Windows Live. It was just such a big company with small teams. So you had the best of both worlds, lots of resources team camaraderie and it would just it felt like you could do anything you could create anything you know space technology at Microsoft and it was a company for smart people run by smart people and that's how it felt. Atlassian was a revelation you know Atlassian is very team focused and they walk the walk and so that exposure of a supportive team of people who do things together was amazing. Microsoft wasn't like that. Microsoft was a little more combative. I mean, not the outright opposition, but there's a lot of internal competition between people on teams, between teams. Uh, there's this famous diagram <laughs> about uh, all the different departments holding a gun to each other. You should check it up which, uh, on the internet. some meme out there that was very old. And Microsoft was a little like that. So Atlassian was a revelation in terms of team. Calendly is interesting because the culture isn't fully formed yet, and I'm part of building that culture, which is a part of what I'm attracted to Calendly. And what I try to do is to take the best of what I've experienced, and frankly, the best of what my mentors have experienced, and uh, the things that I think are good for broad culture, and try to instill it here. And now, Calendly is about 100 people now, right? Yes. Okay. It's interesting how that culture grows and changes a little bit over time, you yeah. know, and usually on solid foundations, but yeah. things change around the edges as the growth is there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's important to, you know, interview for culture fit or culture ad. When you're growing as fast as we are, which is like twice doubling every year now, culture can change so much and you have to both write it down, understand what you want and try to instill it day to day. Uh, otherwise, it will get away from you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's uh, it's underappreciated how much impact culture has on the success of businesses, especially during high growth. When if you can hire to fit a culture and have that cohesive, you know, foundation of culture, it really helps in the in the growth of the company. Yeah, no, it, it does. Um, one of the things that I look at, you know, when I went to business school, I one of the things that I learned, and when I did a, a few consulting gigs. And you can recommend to a company what they need to do. But they don't have the DNA of the culture to execute it. They still can't. You know, you can, software, you can write anything in the world, but not every company can build everything. So anyway, culture is, is huge. Absolutely. 
So, you know, I was, I was looking back through some of your tweets and you tweeted in the past that alignment's a huge part of a, a product manager's job and they need to master this art of bringing people together and along with ideas in an open-minded way. Can we dig into that a little bit deeper? What are your strategies for building alignment? I tweeted that because, you know, I heard someone complaining about executive meddling in your product plans, which is pretty common. And I have some empathy for that, but very little patience for it. You know, uh, PMs have to try to master the human side of building software. And one of the most important things is alignment. You have to identify, write down who needs to buy into what you're building. Usually it's a stable set of people roles, but sometimes it changes case by case. And once you do, once you have that list, you need to find airtime for review. You record issues and decisions, and you drive them to a close. We may complain about the time it takes, but it's also our job to try to make it a process that is manageable and fast. Execs like efficiency, too. So at any rate, you get the job done, and alignment is part of it. Uh, you engineer the people, not just the software. That's what I believe that PMs are supposed to do. One of the rituals that we do here at Cowley is something very like uh, Pixar's uh, Brains Trust, where we have a meeting with executives, and if it's high-level enough and painful enough for us to solve, we just pre-schedule it. It's weekly. It's like a train, and some, everything that needs alignment goes into that train, gets aligned, gets feedback, and we keep it moving. Yeah, so that's, that's what we do here. And one of the things you mentioned was talking about alignment to get to fit. How do you know when you've reached product market fit? It made me think about that, right? How do, how, that's something a lot of PMs struggle with. Yeah. Product market fit, man, that mysterious thing. I've finally sort of landed on how I think of a product market fit. I think it's when you have a, a product with a clear value proposition that resonates with customers. Customers, you know how to reach and convert. So... You know, I think those are the pieces, like clear value proposition. It resonates with some customer base, and there are more of them, and you know how to find them. And they will pay you in some way. I know it's a mouthful, but um, it's really about building what people need, and, and you can find more of those people. That's it. That's how I think about it fundamentally. Uh, now, there's a, have you seen the superhuman question that's out there, that survey? Like, there's variations of it, but it's it really comes down to, like, could you live without this product, right? Yeah. And having people actually answer that, like how much of an impact would it be if this product was taken away from you? I have, I've seen that. But, you know, I think that's a, a really high bar. Mm -hmm. If a product can meet it, awesome, right? If there are lots and lots of people who can't live without it, awesome. Now, is the bar something that a product can consistently hit? I don't know. Like, like for Calendly, the people in sales and marketing, because we're part of a modern sales stack and selling stack, the people who can't live without Calendly. But it's not all our customers that can't live without Calendly. And our job is to make it that, right? Mm -hmm. um, the people who need us desperately, but the people who don't as well, how can we deepen their needs? So it's a good bar, but I, I wouldn't make all my product decisions based on that answer, I don't think. What about myths about product market fit? You know, you hear all these different stories. Do you have any myths or stories you've heard about product market fit? Man, there's so much narrative out there. Um, you know, I think I did uh, my early customer development days where it was Steve Blank, and he was he kept insisting about you know if people are willing to pay you. Well, some people can be willing to pay you, and there's not a lot of those people. So you know what I. 
I hear all sorts of things. I don't know any specific myths, but I think it's really about that. Find something valuable, be able to repeat the, find more people who will find it valuable and know how to reach them, how to sell to them, how to market to them. I hear all kinds of wrong things, but I think to me that's sort of the center of the truth. Got it. Got it. So no, Calendly is an interesting story. You have some of those viral and those network effects that come into play with Calendly. Do those things help drive, you know, what's a big buzzword today, product-led growth? It does. I uh, I think that product-led growth and virality and network effects are different things. Product-led growth is probably a much bigger topic and it's much more important for PMs to understand. The product has to be simple. Or parts of it ha- at least have to be simple and approachable, if not everything. Some there are big problems that are hard to make simple, especially initially, but you have to make some parts of it simple, an entire thing or parts of it. It helps with the product and the experience for free, on demand, so freemium is important. The other thing is important, and none of these things are in any priority order, is that in the company itself, the leadership should be aligned that it's, they want to execute in a product-led way. Sometimes there's internecine warfare between sales and marketing, and leadership and doesn't really work. Converting to a paid version has to be a bit of a science. You have to know how to do that. I think that if you get all those things down, if you know how to solve pain, if you have customer focus, design focus, product focus, and you have those as priorities, that's your foundation. That's your foundation. What you can then do with network effects and virality is you can accelerate growth. That's what it really is. Virality is all really about marketing. It's about how to cheaply have your product lead from one person to the other. And network effects is like the extreme version of that. It's easier if you have a business that has naturally two sides, two-sided businesses. But anyway, I think of, if you don't get the base right, network effects is not going to save you. Not really. So you talked about freemium in that answer too. What's what's your perspective on freemium or premium trials? What works best for startups, mid-sized companies and enterprises? Or does it change based upon the product you're selling? That's a good question. Um, I think that freemium is important at any scale. You know, I think it's great to have a diversity of customers. Um, you're going to have, hopefully you have customers that are on the low end, but you also have customers on the high end who are enterprise. The reason I think freemium is forever is that most companies migrate from you know the low end to the high end over time. And it turns out that people who are on the high end, even if they can buy freemium, they don't want to. If they're gonna hand you a million dollar check I want to talk to someone about it. So, you know, later on you add sales, you add post-sales account management and support, or just, you know, straight up sales like everyone, you know, like big sales like everyone does. But I think you, you have to have it. You have to have that staircase, you know, serve people who, who don't want you to talk to them and who can buy your stuff, serve people who need a lot of hand-holding and build an organization and do both things. Do you think it's easier starting from the bottom and moving up? Uh... On balance, yes, but I do, I do think it depends on your product. I don't think there's a blanket answer for that. But the generic answer, I think, yes. But I recognize that some products don't lend themselves very well to moving up from the bottom. The, the things that are sort of bigger decision makers, like the way I think about that is who's going to make the decision? Is it the ordinary end user or it has to be the organization? And if it's an organization, starting from the bottom maybe not make as much sense for your product. 
So talk to me about, you know, your product team and how it approaches customer calls. Do you, do you make it a priority for people? It seems like there's a, a correlation between, you know, success of products and their uh, propensity for doing customer calls. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave that for you to answer. Say a lot of the people in the back. <laughs> yes, we do a lot of customer calls, but I think every team struggles to get this right. And we're struggling to make it really great for us by means that we keep working at it. First of all, the product team needs to be sold on a purpose. It can be a law. It can be wrote. They have to see why this is important. And they have to see that perpetually. A lot of teams will do customer calls for a quarter, two quarters, and they assume they know everything about everything about what customers want, and then they'll stop. And that's, that's a bad thing. Uh, you need some training on how to do good customer development. You can call a customer and waste the hour completely by asking stupid questions. So just selecting the right customers, asking open-ended questions, figuring out how to synthesize it, committing it in a place others can consume it, all those things matter. Some automation is important. Uh, we automate generic customer calls. So where there's like a habit, every week you get, every PM gets a customer call. Now when you have a project or you're working on something specific, then you dig in and it's not just a generic thing. You have to target your customers and do really deep research. You know, your script has to be custom, different, and all that thing. The thing I want to discover, and this is important to us when we do a customer call is, Tell me about the workflow that we are trying to optimize for you. What are your dreams and aspirations related to that workflow? And then we shift one side and say, well, tell me a little bit about the workflow that preceded that, right? And then we shift to the other side and say, okay, now we've fulfilled all your hopes and dreams. What workflow does that lead to? What's happening next, even if we're not part of that? I think understanding that fulsome, you know, core workflow we want to target, what precedes it, what follows it, helps us build better products in general and helps us prepare for the future because we, as we expand our use cases, we'll know which direction we go. So we just try to automate and make it a system and let PMs know why we do this and why it's a competitive edge so that even if we don't have a system, they'll still figure out how to do it. Hmm. I like that. One of the cool things I've always liked, and I'll have a little plug for Calendly here, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> we'll go and it will actually find customers to talk to based upon their usage of the product. So mm -hmm. we'll say, oh, there's a new feature we launched. We'll mm -hmm. find people that are using it a lot. And we'll pop up a little guide after they're done completing a task in that mm -hmm. functional area. And it'll be like, hey, we see you're using this new feature. We'd love to get feedback from you. Would you mind scheduling a time? Here's our Calendly link. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so it's a great little guide. It automates the whole process, gets them to sign up for a time to chat with you. Uh, do you guys do, I mean, do you see, do you hear stories like that all the time we, with Calendly? We, we hear stories like this all the time. You know, everything from lead generation and lead filtering and just straight up marketing to product people. Mm -hmm. User research. Um, I just interviewed a guy for a user research position, and the only reason he came to interview with Calendly was because he uses Calendly to get his user calls, to his user research set up all the time, and it's indispensable to him. And so we hear those stories all the time, and it's, it's amazing. And the question for us is always like, huh, how can we have made that easier? Like, how can we make that just come out of the box so that you didn't have to do anything? Should we do an integration with Pendo, right? So that Every time you do you walk through, you just this one click to say connected and you can select whatever call and the link will just show up in that user experience. So those are the kind Yeah, of that would be cool. A little <laughs> widget that just automatically yeah. knows who you are, launches it, launches your calendar link, puts it in there. It's yeah. good. Yeah. 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 
So we should talk after this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, Aji and I had a great fortune of having dinner together in Vancouver a couple weeks ago uh, with another bunch of product leaders, Dan Olson and some others. I, great time. But one of the things I noticed about you from that dinner is you're a good storyteller, right? Mm-hmm. You, you tell a good story. So talk to me about storytelling in product management. How and why should product managers embrace that role of being a good store or being a storyteller? You know, one of my old um, bosses, Joff, used to harp on storytelling quite a bit. He's still at Alassian. And I used to do it naturally when I was comfortable, but he encouraged me to make it more deliberate, right? And as I began to ponder about the power of storytelling, I realize why it's so important, why it's so influential. I think it's because storytelling is old, right? It's older than newspapers. It's older than books. It's the original way that we pass on generational knowledge. Growing up in Nigeria, Africa is full of stories. Like, as kids use, it's a lot of animal. Like, if we committed the stories I heard as a child into books or comics or cartoons, it will be a billion dollars. Like all those African stories about a tortoise, a Nancy, and we really did them justice. It could be superheroes, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, the point is storytelling is old, oratory is old, they precede, you know, the op-ed. It's how humans naturally see the ideas. It's how we move people to passion. And those are all things that product managers need to be able to do. You need to be able to move people to passion. You need to see your ideas. And just saying it, is not convincing, right? Saying it is not doesn't move anywhere to anything, and storytelling is your hook. It's your is the thing that makes you more um, effective. So yeah, if you want to be two x product manager, ten x product manager, you have to be a storyteller. If you want to be a one x, don't tell stories. Basically, I think that's how it shakes out. What what else is that ten x product manager? I feel like that ten x engineer story. You know, it's know, probably getting know, old by now. But I know, I know. Did you hear? Did you see the controversy? Like, um, from I think someone said something on that Hacker News about ten x, and it just for you know for like a couple of weeks. Oh, it blew up it into blew a huge up. meme. Yeah, yeah. I know, there's ten x everything's going around. <laughs> right. Um, I think product management is this weird discipline, but clearly influencing. The tools of influence, and the tools of influence are some of the things that help you be 10x. How do you get people to do what you want to be done? How do you get people to row in your direction, irrespective of title, whatever? So, I, I, you know, storytelling is one of them. Presence is one of the charisma is part of it. Clear communication, writing, just being diligent and follow up. And they're just a, a whole bunch of skills that, you know, I don't have time to list down and maybe someone should because product managers is too mysterious today and I don't like it because of that I think we should be more obvious we should be less an art and more of a science but yeah that's how you get to be yeah I I feel like we've moved from that (laughs) art to maybe the craft stage definitely not quite the science but you know it'd be interesting to lay out the the skill sets and what can be learned versus what needs to kind of be an inherent personality con- characteristic, right? Yeah. It's hard to teach things, I think, like empathy, right? Yeah. Those are those are harder things to teach than maybe communications, you know, up the chain, right, where you can teach people how to do a better job, you know, communicating to their bosses. I think they still need to have inherently good communication skills, but I think you can craft that in a way that 
you know, makes them present better to executives for so. I, I agree. And I, I do that all the time. I do a lot of coaching. I watch PMs drive alignment and after they're done, you know, we'll, we'll debrief and how it went and how they could do better. But even if you dig into the word empathy, what, what does that mean? It's too vague. Like that's how does it, that's, I think that's a movement from art to craft to science. Empathy can be broken down. Say one piece is doing the customer development well. But even that can be, you, know, you can write customer development scripts that everyone can use. You can say, here's a good answer, and here's how to get the next answer. I think that even within empathy, there are things you can systematize. And it makes a difference between people who are intuitive about it and people who are not, but who can get good at it, if you can break it down into pieces. And, you know, that's the whole point of education, right? Like, if you go to a statistics class, no one knows statistics intuitively. They break it down into small pieces, you know, the distribution, blah, blah, blah. And I think... Product management could stand that kind of uh, systematization. I think it can because it's the only thing that you can teach in school. It's ridiculous, and it's an apprenticeship. And that's kind there's of a few. There's a few <laughs> programs that have uh, classes now. I know Carnegie Mellon's one. They have a master's in product management. Oh, now. I did not know that. that yeah, is, they're starting to emerge. Right. That is. An, so. That's amazing. We should do that everywhere. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I always let people know. Well, Carnegie Mellon's my alma mater, too, oh, so I make is. sure to okay. mention awesome. that. Awesome. But, uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few programs that are growing now. You know, it used to be back in the day there was, you know, pragmatic marketing, and that was it. Yeah. You know, you got your, your certificate. But, yeah, there's there's more programs now. So it's it's uh, it's cool to see from people that are old product people like me and you, right? Uh, although, I, I mean, it would be great to see what they teach. But, um, you know, at Microsoft, we hired product people from college. And it was this voodoo process. We had to invent, like, how do you find the product DNA? And we had all these theses, and we'd find smart people, mostly in engineering. But sometimes we'd get them from the English department. But I just don't know if those things stand up to scrutiny and what the success rates were. But we had a system. Yeah, one thing I find interesting is just how good product leaders have come from all different kinds of educational backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing more and more of that. And I think this idea that, you know, software product managers needed to have strong technical skills has been debunked. And I see more and more, you know, people coming from backgrounds that maybe facilitate being better storytellers mm. uh, or different areas of product management that are important, right? Really good communicators, maybe even coming out of things like, you know, English, as you said, or <laughs> journalism, right? Uh, that you wouldn't traditionally thought of as like, where you would hire for product management. Yeah, and I don't mean any, uh, any uh, I don't want to say any bad thing about the English department, <laughs> much respect. But actually, is it really debunked that you don't need technical skills or you don't absolutely need it? I feel it is. You know, it might be a little bit controversial, but I know we used to ask that question when I was hosting some debate club lives. And generally, people have felt that, like, you know, you need enough technical skills to understand the problem. Mm -hmm. If you can't understand the problem that you need to be passionate about and work with engineering to solve, mm -hmm. it's great. But I think, you know, you can be too technical and, and kind of go back to your roots and start saying, hey, here's the problem I'm passionate about. And oh, by the way, Mr. Engineer, here's the solution I came up mm -hmm. with to do it. Mm -hmm. So you go do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not a good way to get no, that that's, that's relationship awful. working. No, that's awful. But I think those are separate things. I'm... 
Oh, I'm not, and I'm not saying, you know, technical skills are bad for yeah, product yeah, managers. Yeah. I mean, this is coming from, a, you know, an ECE guy, electrical and computer right. engineering background. So where did you, so you went to Carnegie Mellon? Yeah. yeah. You're a Canadian. So that's what you did your undergrad too? I did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, I didn't cool. do a master's. Oh, so cool, cool, Pittsburgh, cool. Pennsylvania. Yeah, Shout yeah. out to Pittsburgh. Lots of great friends who came out of uh, um, CMU. No, I think, I, honestly, I think like anything, I think it depends. I think it's very hard to build a kernel product if you're not technical. Right? Absolutely. Being that product manager because you have to you have to be able to understand the problem yeah, you're yeah. trying to solve. And if you can't understand that then yeah. you have problems. It's like, you know, if it was really deep genetic engineering product manager, yeah. you have to have some background yeah. there. Yes. Uh, but you don't have to be to the point where you could be writing the yeah. code yeah. in the no, software. It's unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. People have to yeah. be very responsible. Anyway, we shouldn't get into this controversy. But I agree with you, it's contextual. Understand the problem have empathy for it, and I think you'd be successful. And frankly, in SaaS, if you limit the world to B2B SaaS, well, the problems aren't that complicated. The problem is the customer, and you know the workflow that you're trying to optimize. Mm -hmm. And that allows a room for various kinds of backgrounds for product managers, because it is not kernel hacking. It never is, at least in that in that world. So there's an opportunity for everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I grew up in a world where you could split product managers, where you see like technical product managers yeah, and too. more customer focused <laughs> product managers that work together to deal with some of those more technical things like, yeah. you know, kernels. So going back to alignment, since that, that came up again, how can product managers strengthen the relationships with other departments and how should they approach friction from other teams in a tactical way? It's, you have to be purposeful. Everything that you're not purposeful about can come and bite you in the butt. But building relationships, PMs have to be really purposeful about it, especially with leaders and influencers in their company, especially when you sense skepticism. You know, there are departments or people where it's just like an open embrace. They want to hug you. Focus on relationship then. But when you sense people who don't want to hug you, then double down. Double down on those relationships. In frequent one-on-ones, Going out to lunch, uh, if you can build a relationship going out to dinner, the biggest problem in building software is always people. It's always people. It's a human intensive thing, but you know, thank God it pays back more than consulting uh, in terms of the marginal cost and the cost of distribution. Uh, but it's a people intensive game and people skills are premium. Now, that's what you can do as a PM. If you, depending on where you're on the hierarchy, if you sense real disconnect, you should escalate. You should escalate. If, if uh, one of the PMs who work for me sends a disconnect with a department that they need to, and they sort of massaged it and they can't, it can't really work but at their level, I should know about it. I should then take my gear and do what I can do to force some detente, you know, whatever that, that's required. I, but anyway, the, my entire point is the people problems, the alignment problems are some of the biggest problems, and we should be super intentional about them. I'm I'm a, I'm a direct engagement. I take them seriously. I engage and I find resolution. That's that's just important. So talk to me a little bit about, about transparency. You know, how much transparency do you think there should be in your roadmap? How much transparency do you think there needs to be between product teams and the rest of the company? Does that transparency help with this alignment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I think the transparency between the product team and the company should be one thousand percent. It should be, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's how each piece fits into the Lego block. And, oh, do you have more questions about who's working on what? Here it is. Like, there is no 
I don't think there's a limit to how much transparency you should give to the roadmap internally because a lot of people in a product like company key off of that, you know, customer support, sales, marketing, if you're lucky. And it also gives you feedback. People are like, that's bullshit, if I'm allowed to say that here. And that tells you something. If people internally don't believe in your roadmap, why would your customers believe in your roadmap? It makes no sense. Externally, I think you should probably publish 50 to 80% of your roadmap only at a high level. And by externally, you mean sharing that roadmap customers. with customers? That's right. I think you, I think the strategy here usually that I really like is if you have a community, you share with them. I don't know that you should broadcast it to the world. Some of those things are important. Some of them are even fiduciary level things that you should be careful about. But broadcast it to your courses with your customers, get feedback, get buy-in. Redact some of it if it's sensitive, but you should be. I think people should be habitually publishing something to some segment of their customer base. Now, what's that twenty percent that you don't share? Things that might be competitive. If you you're planning to disrupt your ecosystem, sharing that is going to give you a lot of forewarning. Uh, your marketing team is going to hate you. Your sales team is going to hate you. There are things that telegraph, and I don't like. You know, you don't want to telegraph your punches in this game. It's competitive. You know, if you have them overlap with heap analytics or whatever, like sometimes you don't want to give it up. So I think it's basically everything you have to say, what's the ROI and telling everyone this. And sometimes it's negative ROI until you keep it to yourself. Got it. So let's talk about the future. What trends do you see in the future of product management? I think it's related to what we're talking about. I think it's that product management should be teased apart, systematized, documented. How many textbooks are there on being a software developer? How many textbooks are there on being a QA? How many textbooks are there on all the disciplines that surround us in the shipyard, right? Program management is is too mysterious. I remember, like, rewind five years ago, the only book I had on product management was published by Windows. It was the Windows Product Management Handbook, right, which was Microsoft finally documented how to do both product and selling in Microsoft. And that was very useful. It was super useful to all the product managers at Microsoft because people across teams were doing so many, like going to Dev Div and be a PM, just like you're living in La La Land. You go to Windows and your PM is a totally different practice and it was crazy. I think more codification, more teaching in schools, even degrees and certification. I think it has to change. I don't know in what direction, but basically in the direction of satisfying the needs that exist in the market. The PMs that feel like me, all things I learned, technical PMs, all those things, I think it's changing dramatically. I, I don't have yet fully formed all the directions that will change, but I think the craft will change to accommodate other players, other teammates. Uh, people like me have to be thoughtful about what direction is it changing in and sort of lean into those directions where the future is going. So it's a process for me. Got it. So let's turn the topic to you a little bit now. What's your favorite product and why is it your favorite? Oh, man. Hardest question. I love Plex. Plex is a fork of the old Xbox open source software that you can use to host your own media. The easiest way is to buy like a PC or a network X, a NAS, and you just load it up with your DVDs and music. And once you do that, it will serve that media to you 
anywhere in the world through a mobile application on the iPad, whatever you need. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And I use it when I travel in Australia, wherever I am. It'll, it'll serve my needs. In fact, in my home, it connects to the cable box. So if I, if I want to watch local Austin news, Plex can serve it to me, which is incredible. So I love Plex. It's like your own iTunes, your own Spotify. I like it because I, I'm a big believer in owning things. Like the trend of renting services from people kind of bugs me intellectually. So I love Plex for that. Um, the other thing I love right now is Todoist. I'm an ENTP, which means that from a Myers-Briggs perspective, we love ideating. We love living in a world of ideas. But given my job, I have to execute them. And one way that I adapt to that is to-do lists. Um, writing exactly what needs to be done from the ideas that I explore and the meetings that I have. So a simple to-do list like Todoist is indispensable to me. So. Those are two examples. Awesome. So this has been great. One final question for you today. You know, three words to describe yourself. Am I allowed to be bombastic? Yeah. <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> I mean, I know it's a word. Is that a word you would choose? <laughs> no, no. I wouldn't choose that word. Um, I'm, I'm sensitive to appearing um, self-aggrandizing. But, you know, I think one is futurist. Mm-hmm. I feel like all my life I've lived somewhere between years in the future and a second in the future, um, which is good and bad. So a futurist, and one is intellectual. I like to think about the meaning of things, in product specifically the craft and where it's heading and things like that. And wise, right? I strive for wisdom, which is synthesizing what is and what could be and helping communicate that to people so they find meaning. So futurist, intellectual, wise. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been great, Aji. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Eric. I enjoyed it as well. It was a lot of fun. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.